subject this morning you see on the title slide there is a life of faith, the life of faith, a life which a believer is called to live. Um, last week I spoke about what Paul had to say in Romans uh, regarding the practicality and struggle, unfortunately, that many people have when it comes to matters of faith, and that is that they deny or fail to see the reality of what God has done um, in creation, in, in order, in all things that uh, we talked about last week. And this week I wanted to amplify that and more personalize it, that the life of faith, as exemplified in this uh, incredible scripture, uh, is really where the rubber meets the road in a Christian's life. Uh, there's many, many scriptures, and we'll look at some of them uh, with regards to faith and the life of a believer. Is the life, is the uh, a believer uh, required to make a leap of faith into a, a, a chasm and be caught by the Lord? Uh, I sort of believe that. A little word of testimony, uh, a personal testimony. Uh, most of you may know some of my background. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Uh, I went through the process of, um, uh, you know, the catechism and, and all that it ends up uh, at the age of like 12 where you were baptized and, and, you know, not baptized. We didn't get baptized there, but we, we uh, became believers by virtue of uh, class. And I was actually understood that class, and knew exactly what I was doing uh, as I went through that process. But it's not a guaranteed thing, I just did. But then I never lived it in my life. God brought certain things into my life during my teen years, which were to uh, continually to equip me today and to inspire me. But I didn't live it. And as I got through my 20s, pretty close to 30, the Lord began to pester me with how I was living my life and things that I was doing that I shouldn't be doing and where I was focused and should be focused elsewhere. And I realized I had a choice to make. That's what, he, that's what the Lord was calling me to do. I had a choice that I was either going to, to act like I believed what I believed, which I did believe, or I was just going to have to ignore it and say it's not true. Uh, you know, the Lord really made me make a decision about how I'm going to practically live my life. I was living it theoretically before. You know, I was had this idea that there's a there's God and Jesus has, has saved me, and but I didn't live it. And so I made that decision. Yes, I believe it, and I'm going to live it. But I was willing to make it a leap of faith. Now I don't know how many of you think it's a leap of faith. I'm not going to show for uh, ask for a show of hands because I'm going to try to demonstrate to you that it's not a leap at all. Uh, the whole concept of a leap of faith comes from uh, something else, which I'll mention in a minute. But for me, I did make it a leap of faith. I jumped into the darkness not knowing really what it meant. I didn't know too much in the way of Scripture. But when I read, as an adult, the Scriptures, which I'm going to cover this morning, particularly the first part of it, my heart literally leapt with joy. Because I realized I wasn't jumping into the dark at all. I was jumping into what a logical, ordered, rational mind should be able to see. 
It's not at all stepping into a chasm of darkness. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, and uh, let's look at a couple of passages. Uh, right now, Habakkuk 2.4. I looked at this last week, but it really applies here as well. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. This is one of the key concepts to Christian living, that our lives are governed by walking by faith. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 is another passage. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. One of the problems is we are consumed by what we perceive in our senses. And we forget what we don't see, which is the reality of what God is doing and what he has done on our behalf. This is the struggle. This is where the rubber meets the road. And so we tend to make our lives as if we were just walking with our eyes closed knowing the Lord's going to take care of us, which is not really that, it's not accurate. It's not the way we should do it. We're not like Indiana Jones there, stepping out, just believe, just believe, you know. That's my, that's my uh, Scottish impression there. But um, the, uh, the idea is it's not based on that. And let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1. And I, I've actually thrown in verse 6. 1 to 3, and I, I throw verse 6 in here. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And without faith, faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now what does the Bible ta- tell us about who seeks after God? How many? Who seeks after God? Scripture tells us this. Any? Zero. No, not one. No, no, nobody seeks after God. God seeks you out. Hold on to that thought for a minute. Um, what the essential part of this thing is to me is that, and this is why my, literally, my heart leapt when I saw these words, because I was willing to walk in the church door, take my brain out of the cranial deposit, and p- deposit my brain on the, on the shelf out there above my coat and come in and be fed and be able to ex- be quite okay with that. That was a leap of faith that I was willing to take. I might be willing to take a leap of faith, but what I did was not based on a leap. It's not looking to the darkness. It's based on a rational, reasonable mind acting on what is real and reality. And this is exactly what the scripture tells us. That it's, and I love the King James, the original King James is what I remembered here. It's the evidence, it's substance, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of, these are legal words. These are conviction words. These are things. These are words that send one to prison, hell. <laughs> In other words, they convict you. These, the reality of what God has done, will convict you. In Romans chapter one, to hell if you reject it. It's literally that true. And holding on to that reality was such blessed assurance for me. Because now I don't have to leave my brain on the, in, in, the, in the hallway, the vestibule, and come into the church and ex- accept whatever I hear. It's reasonable. It's rational. 
the, uh, the whole concept of faith is essential in the Christian walk. And the beauty of, uh, of the quote that I, I, I just kind of put things together, but the assurance comes through evidence that we don't make a blind leap. Now, what has happened to culture at large is quite the opposite. And this is where, this is where we get mired down. The word leap of faith is actually a fairly historically recent term. Uh, the, the old church, the ancient church at the time it was written, uh, you know, in the first century AD, did not, even a leap of faith was not even something they understood. It's a modern term, and it comes from the philosophy of these really smart dudes like in the 1800s, 1700s. Um, and the guy who coined the phrase was a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, who I'm not going to go into, but he, I believe, is a believer as far as everything I've read about him. I think he believed. But back then, they had determined that belief in, a, in God who you can't put in a test tube and measure is irrational. And Kierkegaard still believed. So he says, I believe, but it's a leap of faith to get there because I can't cross that gorge between rational and irrational. That's, what he, that's where he, in his brilliant mind, that's where he got. And he was being honest, but he was also being wrong. That it's not a chasm between rational and irrational. The rational side is the one that, like I stated last week, there's two choices. Either the world was created, or the world has always been there. Because it's, which is impossible, because nothing, something always has a cause. And, and so it's not irrational at all to hold that belief. But to his idea, it was a leap of faith. And that really has winnowed its way through culture throughout those centuries, over almost two centuries since. He died in 1855, for example. But the way things like that work are they feed through just a progression, really, of it goes from philosophy to art. And all the artists of the uh, late 1800s, early 90s, the Picasso, all those imagery, the what's the one with the guy with his mouth open and the... The, the moon behind him, and the, who, who did that picture? Those are, the, yeah, the, the scream. Those are all out of these ideas because man is stuck in philosophy between rational and irrational. That it's almost like if I go over here and just use an a, a, a easy term to understand, I'm on now, you're right, I'm a Republican. And I offer you a, a truth as I see it. And over here, I'm a Democrat. And I'll offer you truth as I see it. And where does the resolution take place? Hopefully somewhere in the middle. Not so much anymore. But there is a working out of a synthesis of two ideas. This is where this all comes from. And the problem is that it's not in the middle. When it comes to God, I'll go to the right here, it's, it's, it's in the Word of God, in His creation. The fact that He created it. This is Romans chapter 1. It's founded upon that reality, the principle of truth. And anything less than that is watered down and not the truth, tr truthful word of God. So if we live like we believe, then we are going to live by faith through assurance of what he said is real and true. That is the key to Christian life. And uh, Hebrews is a chapter full of heroes of the faith. But what I love about Hebrews um, is especially what it doesn't say. And I'm going to look a little bit into what it doesn't say as well here. 
through Scripture. Um, the, the, the point I wanted to make next really is about a living legacy. Uh, we live in Living Legacy Church. Uh, Pastor Larry chose a, a, another passage to get this uh, concept from, but in reality, um, I, I find a, a fantastic living legacy. In fact, the Scripture says this um, in this next story, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. This is the uh, first, if you will, of the hit parade of people of faith. By faith, Abel... Abel offered uh, to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. The gifts of Abel still speak to the the, the point of faith. Even now, that's a living legacy that has lived throughout the centuries of mankind's existence. But let's look at that story for a minute and consider what happened? Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was the keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock out of their fat portions And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became angry, very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know, for am I my brother's keeper? He said to him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying from the ground. The voice of Abel is crying from the ground, and what was the difference between Cain and Abel's offering? You had your herdsman, you had your, your, uh, your tiller of the ground, a farmer. They both bought offerings from their produce. One was accepted and one was rejected. What was the difference in the offering? Was it the offering itself? It was the attitude of the giver. Abel was offering out of love and devotion to his creator God. Cain was a man of religion. He was... He was acting according to the doctrines of faith which require him to bear fruit out of his produce and lay it before the Lord. It was an obligation, a religious obligation that he was fulfilling. Which one was acceptable to the Lord? The one from the heart of the man. And when God chastised Cain for his failure to do the first duty, which is to love the Lord with all your heart, and did the obligation part, which was not through his heart, he was chastised. And how did he react? He killed his brother. Now, why did he kill his brother? Well, that's the reason why he killed him. But it may have at the moment been because his cow ate some of the corn he had planted. I mean, that's what stewed him to kill him, perhaps. I don't know, I'm making this up. But the real reason was, is because 
he had been rejected by God for his own problem. Not God's problem, his own heart was not right before the Lord. So you can see the, the working of a person of faith is that because of the love and devotion for the Lord, which is not just, it's not an obligation, it is rationally correct. If we are created by God, and we are, and if we are sustained by God, which we are, do we not owe Him the gratitude which is completely and entirely His? Because we are nothing in and of ourselves. We wouldn't even be here if He had not created us. And He the scripture tells us clearly, he loves us and sustains us, and we are silent before him, which is not right. If we're silent before him, it should be in reverence, not in disregard, not in looking the other way. Um, this is where the issue comes. Uh, the next passage in, uh, we look at is Hebrews 11, and this is the next hero of the faith. By faith, Enoch uh, was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. This is one of two, I think, just two, two people that ever lived that were taken straight to heaven and did not experience physical death. Elijah is the other one. Uh, let's look and see what Genesis says about, briefly, it's a very small passage, but about Enoch. We don't know too much about him. Uh, this is from Genesis 5, 21 through 24. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24 says it all. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, we don't know any details of this. I mean... I know in my own mind, I, I picture Enoch walking with God, and you'll see him talking to somebody, and there'll be footprints going beside him, but nobody's there. That's what I, mean, that's what I think of when I think of Enoch. Uh, but he was known for a person who walked with God. We are supposed to be known as people who walk with God, right? I mean, as believers, we should be walking with God. But we're not taken up. The difference between Enoch and me is that Enoch was really walking with God, really intimately walking with God, so much so that he was taken into the presence of God and did not suffer death. The, the, the process here is that this is what it says, uh, we saw in the passage earlier, that we walk by faith and not by sight. Enoch walked completely by faith. The problem with faith in our rational minds sometimes is that because we can't see it, we don't believe it. Seeing is believing. This common culture. When, when, I, when we talk about ideas, such as we talked about that, that the answer is in the middle somewhere, it's permeated our culture. Uh, this is this is and it's thematically has been true for a long time. And we live in a really weird time that way because now we no longer have absolutes. The average person on the street doesn't believe in absolutes, doesn't have a, uh, in other words, it's too, it's not attainable. That's why I said it's now a leap of faith to people to believe. Some people will take that leap, and they ought to be quickly assured, like I was, that it's not a leap of faith at all. It's a decision made based on rational, logical order. 
that God has created. And Enoch was one who literally exemplifies what a real, true life of faith was. He walked with God, period. And he didn't vary, and didn't strain, and didn't get distracted. Um, the next one I want to look at is, uh, is looking at Abraham. Uh, the passage in Hebrews uh, is fairly brief on that, uh, but I'm going to go a little deeper into Abraham because it, it, he exemplifies, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, an example of a man who uh, was called by God and then was very human in, in, his, in his answer to the calling. Hebrews uh, 11.8 By faith... Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was gone, going. Uh, that comes out of Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, as a matter of fact, verses 1 through 5. This is the calling of, of, um, of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before he had the H, the Yahweh, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in all, you and all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abraham took Sarai his wife, and Lot and his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now, there's a lot there, and a couple of things I'd like to pause on just because they're interesting. You can read through this and, and, and sort of pass through this, but this, some of this stuff's interesting. The first thing is that the, the character of, of uh, uh, verses 2 and 3, are they follow actually a formula, an ancient formula, which are typical of ancient rulers. When an ancient ruler would make a, um, uh, a proclamation from his throne, it had a formula, a certain formula to it. And this is in that pattern. Uh, this is God making a covenant with Abraham. And this is what is called an unconditional covenant. It's really important to understand that. Some, condition, some covenants he makes are conditional. If you do this, or if I, I will do this if you do this. That's usually the order it's done in. I will do this, you do this. And, and as long as that is placed, then this will be in effect. This is unconditional. This is God saying, I'm going to do this, Period. This is unconditional covenant. It's really important to understand that. So, God does, is going to do his part, period, no matter what Abraham does. Now, Abraham, Abram at this point, uh, goes through it in a very interesting fashion. What does it say? What, what's he told to do? He's told to go, leave his father's house to the land of God, I will show you. Who does he say to take with him? Didn't say take anybody, but he takes his wife. Okay, we give, give him that. He takes his 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 uh, his, his um, nephew Lot and all their hired hands. Um, so 
he's already making independent uh, additions to the calling. And um, the, uh, the one last piece there I want to mention before I go on is that he's calling him, this again, this is not about Abraham, he's calling him to go to a place to be the father of countless, and this is reassured to him other places in Scripture as well, and he's called to be there and to, through him, all the families on earth are going to be blessed. That promise was made in the very beginning, and how is that fulfilled? It's not through Abraham, it's through his lineage, which includes Christ. Through Christ, the entire world is blessed. Now, that particular passage really is where Hebrews 11.8 is referring to, that he was called to go, and he went. He, he responded by faith, not knowing where he was going. All he knew was that God had called him, he knew God called him, and he was going to go forward no matter what, and that's what he did. But it also goes on to say, and I'll just do a couple, just a couple of examples, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 9 through 12. It says, Abraham journeyed on, just, just a few verses after the other one, continuing on toward the Negev. The Negev is the desert in the south of Israel, very arid, very dry. And he gets there, and now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about, when he came near to Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, that I may live on account of you. So, this is, just, this, is, this is where the rubber meets the road in life. I mean, I don't know, I identify with this. You've responded by faith, you're trying to live a life by faith, and circumstances happen which you don't understand, and you decide to fix them. Right? That's what we do. Uh, we see a problem, we fix it. We, for a moment, for whatever reason, have forgotten what God's calling was to us. And we go to the other side and we start working on it. And that's what he did. He saw a problem and he took action and he went a place he was not supposed to go. He was not called to go to Egypt. He was called to go to the land which God showed him, which he did. And then he went to Egypt because it wasn't quite what he expected. And then he decides to convince his wife to act like his sister so that he won't be killed. Now, as if the God who called him to go to be the father of many was going to allow him to die and not have the children that he promised him. Does anybody identify with that a little bit? Hello? <laughs> Me? <laughs> I'm telling you, we do this. And this is where, this is why I say this is where the rubber meets the road. This is why the life of faith it's not an easy life because we are constantly faced with things in life which cause us to lose sight, at least for a moment, of who we are in God. And for that moment, we lack faith. And in that moment we lack faith, we make 
bad decisions. Not that God was not going to be there for us and get us out of those bad decisions, because we know from the story he does. And he does go back, and he does have the children. But the story's not over there. Um, let's look at another passage. Um, let's see here. This next one, I think, the slide is shorter than what I actually want to read. Um, just to get a little more background. Oh, actually, we're just, uh, let's see, we did 9 to 13, and we did that. Uh, this one is uh, 15, and I'm going to read all uh, 1 through um, one through 6, the passage overhead, just the 3 through 6, just to get the whole background on it. Uh, Abraham promised a son, is, is uh, chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? Remember, he was 75 when he went on this mission. (laughs) So, uh, since I am childless and the heir of my house is is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you uh, have given no offspring to me, one born in my household is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. But the one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Now, uh, we know from history, from ancient things that have been found, that what Abram was doing here is actually a legal uh, contract, which was a suitable way to pass on your inheritance if you didn't have a child. This actually is ancient uh, law, 101. That if you had a person in your household, which was from your household, in other words, not born of you, but born in your household, this person was a... Uh, probably the, the main, the head of the uh, servants, if you will, of Abram, he was going to make him his legal heir. That's what he was doing. It was a legal document, I make you my heir. That's what Abram's intention was. But what God says is, no, he's not going to be your heir. Not that there's anything wrong with him, but he's not going to be your heir. I'm going to give you a son. Which is difficult to understand in the circumstances of his life. In fact, they're pretty much biologically impossible. Um, and he says, he took, and he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your, shall your descendants be. Verse 6 is the key verse here. Then he believed the Lord, and he, God, capital H, reckoned it to him as righteousness. The fact that he had faith in God, God gave credited to his account as weak and as flawed as he was, he credited righteousness to his account. This is before the sacrifice of Christ. This is before all that happened. God is crediting Abraham because of his faith. This is a really important, important thing to understand, that God... You cannot, it's impossible to please God, as it said earlier, without faith. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Never forget that circumstances sometimes stir us to do the wrong thing, but we must continue to, continue to be in faith, believing in God and believing in Christ. One chapter over, 16. Again, I'm going to read 1 through 4. I think 3 and 4 will be in the overhead. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, still. 
And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go to my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar the Egyptian, her, her maid, and gave her to her husband as a, his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Now this is a mess, but this is where the rubber meets the road. You're anticipating God to do something, it hasn't come, so you just can't stand it anymore and you're going to do something about it. So what she does, which by the way, as weird as it sounds now, was a normal, legal way for a person to have offspring, that if the wife was barren, then a surrogate wife could come aboard and bring children to the family so that the family would go on. Believe, remember, they didn't have Social Security then. When an old person got old, the young people took care of that people. We, they had things called families then. Remember those? And they were very close, and they stayed together very close. And the older generation were supported by the younger, and so on and so forth throughout, throughout the, the chain. In this case, with no offspring... What are they going to do when they can no longer plow the fields and tend the fields? There was no, there was no social structure uh, to support that. So it was very important, and they began to panic at like 100, in this case like 85. They began to think, you know, what are we going to do now? And so Sarai decides to convince her husband that this is a path we need to take. We've got to take action, and this is what we're going to do, and he goes along with it. And this produces, as we know, Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Islamic nations, and they are a thorn in Israel's side today, which is exactly what Scripture said in Genesis, that this was going to take place. That he was going to be a wild donkey of a man, and his offspring were going to be a thorn in Israel's side, which is, if, if you haven't read the paper lately, guess what? It's true. So, uh, the example here that I've given you is that even though Hebrews only talks about Abraham in terms of his, his victories. He is a man, a human being, like you and I, and that we make mistakes. We are incomplete in our ability to walk by faith. And we got, just as long as we're honest with each other, and it's this church, and, and we're telling the truth, I think we'll be truthful with one another and, and be honest to say that I have not walked by faith daily, minute by minute, through any one day in my entire life. I can guarantee you that's true. I probably haven't made it through 20 minutes. Well, maybe 20 minutes. Only when I'm, because I'm reading the Bible. <laughs> but as soon as I put it down, I've strayed away already. But it's because I'm a flawed man. What does Jesus say? I think Luke 17 talks about this. It's several places in the New Testament. How much faith do you need? A mustard seed. I mean, that's a small seed. That's a really tiny seed. We've seen a mustard seed. But that mustard seed, in the illustration, grows a gigantic plant that bears incredible amount of fruit. It doesn't take much faith. So how little faith do I have that I can't go through 20 minutes and be a faithful man? Uh, it's sad, really, but it's true. But it's where the rubber meets the road. That's why I said we have a standard by which we're called and a place where we're supposed to be. 
And here's the other thing, Hebrews 11.13. This is really scary. That all of the Hebrews 11, I'm just, it, it, the, the people we didn't even look at, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that, which they were, that they were strangers and exiles on earth. There's an old song, and I started to play a clip of it because I love the song. It's, uh, well, at least the version of it. A guy named Doc Watson plays it. Um, a blind man who plays the guitar from the age of three. He's blind from the age of three. Have you ever heard Doc Watson? Anybody know him? Fantastic guitar player. Completely blind. It's called I Am a Pilgrim and a Stranger. Traveling through this worrisome land. But I've got a home built in that yonder city. Good Lord. And it's not. Good Lord. And it's not. Not made by hand. That song is, uh, speaks to this verse particularly. That we are pilgrims and exiles on earth. If we, are, if we are called by the Lord, we're called out of the earth to remain here as pilgrims in a land, just like Abraham lived, lived in tents in Canaan and never possessed it in his life. The land that was promised Abraham was never possessed by him in any kind of material way. He lived on it. He died on it and was buried in it. And his, the promises to him have still not been completely fulfilled, but as in all the cases of all the saints in, in Hebrews chapter 11, none of them receive the reward on planet Earth. The reward is yet to come. And we live by faith that, that what we are doing is not in vain, that it's not a waste of time, that it's about his glory, it's about his presence being shown. And when I talked earlier about the culture in which we live, this is the tragedy of it. People do not understand the reality and truth of Scripture. The God who is there, as Dr. Francis Schaeffer would put it, has to be shown to be there. And how can he be shown that he is there except through his people? If we're not willing to show what it looks like to be a believer to the people we work among and walk among and are examples to, how are they ever going to see God at work? Because the culture has long since passed by the standard of a God, of a, of a God and his, his, uh, his, his creation and his order. Uh, even though, as Paul said in Romans, we are without excuse. But the question is, and, and I'm going to close with this idea. How much faith is enough faith? Do you have enough? faith? The answer is no, you don't have enough. But it doesn't matter. Because faith is not what you have. It's who you trust your faith in. Never forget this. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's not about how much faith you have. That's why it doesn't take much for us. It takes enough to open your hand and receive what he's offered. That's all. And then, it's his faith which will sustain you. It's him. It's where the object of your faith is placed that matters. It's not in the one who places it. 2 Timothy 1.12, I wanted to close with this. You may have heard this hymn, where this is taken from. 2 Timothy 1.12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. 
For I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Do you trust the Lord to maintain you through whatever life has to offer? Do you live that out amongst people who do not believe and cannot see God because they think he's not there? Or if he is there, well, maybe he's there. There's that leap, that gap, which they cannot cross because there's no bridge. It's a leap they were not willing to take. Who are you in the presence of unbelievers? Are you a person that can illustrate, as flawed as you are, that there is a hope in the reality of a God who is there, and to steal Dr. Francis Schaeffer's second book in the series, he is there and he is not silent. He's speaking daily to his people. Can you be a voice for him where you live, work, and breathe? I trust you can, and if you're not doing it very well, join my club and promise the Lord that with his help you'll do better.